This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. Here in season two, we're focusing on game-changing leadership for the oil and gas industry. With so much massive disruption underway, we all feel the press of so much change facing our industry, yet within that disruption is of course an opportunity, there always is, for us to lead into the energy future. So I take us on a little different journey today. I speak with Joseph Mikett, Director of Climate Policy at the Niskanen Center, which is a moderate think tank in Washington, DC. Joseph is an expert in climate science and climate policy. Previously, he worked on climate change policy in Congress as a congressional science fellow with the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He's testified before Congress on his climate research. He holds a PhD in atmospheric and oceanic science from Princeton, a master's in applied mathematics from Delft University of Technology, and a bachelor's in mathematics from Harvey Mudd College. I think you're going to be surprised by a couple of things on today's podcast, including what Joseph thinks Jeff Bezos should do with his money. Um, So a little interesting tidbit for you to look forward to. Uh, To learn more about Energy Thinks and our work at Adamantine, visit our website at energythinks.com. Now here's my conversation with a leader who I think you will agree is game-changing, Joseph Mikett. Joseph, welcome. Thank you for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. I believe that you would characterize yourself um, as both a political conservative and a climate hawk. In a world that addresses, that prioritizes addressing climate, do you see a role for the oil and gas industry? Well, uh, first off, uh, you're welcome and thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Um, given the <laughs> given the state of conservatism in, in US politics in February of 2021, uh, I think it's, I'd rather go with uh, principles over the label. So, uh, Got it. tell us a little bit myself more about in the that. center, yeah. the cent- well, myself in the center where I work, we're, um, we, you know, we've kind of, we've, we've made it clear that our outlook is probably more properly characterized as moderate rather than, rather than conservative. Uh, and, and I think, you know, really what lies behind that is an explanation that we believe it's important to have public policy that, uh, addresses, um, needs in a sort of small d democratic way. So it's important to leave room for individual rights. For some people, that's the primary policy concern that you know libertarians, that mm-hmm. they would pursue. Uh, it's, it's important that policy is fairly applied. It's important that it protects lives and property, protects the environment, and it creates a, a, a broader policy environment that, that enables prosperity. And so rather than sort of focus on any one of those things, identify what tribe we are a part of and wave that flag around, um, we've decided to settle on being a little bit okay with trying to achieve all of them. Mm. Sometimes they sit in tension and, and deciding that in that tension uh, lies the ability to be innovative. Um, that has led to a, uh, a branding uh, associated with moderate, but it means mm. we're also able to um, uh, work with and address the political and the policy and the personal needs of, of people across the political spectrum. I, I love that idea of living in tension because everything we do 
on this podcast is intention. So um, tell us, tell us a little bit about how you reconcile um, your moderate uh, uh, liber- liberty focus with your cl- uh, climate hawkishness and where you think oil and gas might fit into that. <laughs> well, I think um, if you take seriously the risks uh, that climate change poses to human health and welfare, to the environment more broadly, um, it compels action. You know, we can we can go on and on about the the science and and the the nature of those risks. Those are you know that is my sort of professional and personal background. Um, but but we've arrived at a place where we think relatively rapid decarbonization is probably the best response. And so you then enter this kind of uh, regime where you're thinking about how do you how do you achieve relatively rapid decarbonization? Oil and gas faces a troubling future in a decarbonized world. The business model has to change. We can't continue to emit unabated greenhouse gases and expect things to be all right. Um, At the same time, we can't do this without them either. Uh, I think there's too much political power. There's too much expertise in financing and executing large infrastructure projects. And more and more we're learning that in some places, it's going to be hard to reduce emissions entirely. And so we're going to need some sort of what I would call a carbon management industry. People call it different things, but mm-hmm. some sort of ability to capture CO2, either at point sources or from the atmosphere and, and bury it into geological re, uh, repositories, which is, you know, that is fundamentally the expertise of the oil and gas industry just running in reverse. Mm, I love that idea. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of the carbon management industry of the future, um, because in addition to that component of the energy future, there's just so much existing infrastructure that we have the opportunity to think about how to repurpose thoughtfully. So I, I like that you're you're also taking it one step further into this carbon management. Um, I've been really interested in your work um, about a price on carbon. I think you make a very compelling case that there should be a price on carbon um, to your crit, and you respond often to your critics on the left. And I, I would love for you to tell us why should the oil and gas industry support a price on carbon? Um, does it foreshadow their own doom if they do? And or what happens if they don't uh, support a price on carbon? So you can take that in any direction you like. It's an incredibly rich question. Thank you, by the way, for your compliment. Um, I think. Um, you know, generally we like carbon pricing for, for a couple reasons. One, it provides maximum flexibility for consumers to figure out how to reduce emissions, where and how that is most efficient. You know, it's commonly cited in the oil and gas industry. People like to drive cars. People need these resources. And that's true, right? Like it's empirically true. We use a mm-hmm. lot of fossil fuels still. Even people who think climate change is a problem, like myself, to live a normal person life, I, I sort of have to use fossil fuels, right? Mm-hmm. Now I might make personal commitments to reduce that emissions profile, but if we need everyone to do it without overimposing, you know, the, the will of government bureaucrats, if you will, or, or um, making, you know, a lot of value judgments about how individuals should behave, carbon pricing is the, is the right approach because then people can choose. More often than not, I think they'll choose cleaner options. Prices work to drive incentives, work to drive behavior, particularly in places where, you know, large financial decisions are being made. Now, for folks who are making large financial decisions, you know, 
not necessarily uh, like retail consumers like myself, but people who are investing in a power plant or maybe investing in oil and gas exploration, the existence of a carbon price allows you to change your business plan mm -hmm. in a way that I think oil and gas folks will really appreciate, right? If you need to go to your bank or to your investors and say, listen, the world's getting greener, but, and we want to make a set of investments that are allow us to thrive in that greener world. It's a lot easier to do that when you're saying, it's also going to help us avoid this large tax burden associated with greenhouse gas emissions, as opposed to we're doing the right thing for justice reasons. Justice is a fine imperative to, to pursue, but businesses respond to, you know, at some point you have to be able to book the decisions that you're making. And I think that's probably an underappreciated way that a carbon tax would be really helpful as this industry goes through the clean energy transition. Um, regulations, you know, there's an antagonistic relationship between regulations and, and industry, but incentives I think can work better. Lastly, I would say that if the oil and gas industry, I, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be happy with myself for using this uh, common statement, but you know, if, you, if you're not at the table, you're sort of on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, at some point, this is a political process. And what carbon pricing or its cousins and support for those instruments allows oil and gas to do is come to a political process with credibility in terms of pursuing long-term positive outcomes like net zero greenhouse gas emissions for the United States by mid-century, say, um, and meet you know, people who are their antagonists with, with um, a real and honest approach that will help us move in that direction. And then you can negotiate over the details, right? If you don't have that thing, if you're just constantly saying, we don't want to do this, we like business as usual, people need our resources, you're going to lose the political contest, you're going to lose social license, and eventually you're not going to have the benefits of of models that allow you to transition your business to a clean economy. So, such a good point. And yet you almost can't say that too much as much as it's become a cliche that if we're not at the table, we will be on the menu because oh. now our federal reality is um, led by Democrats. My uh, observation from outside political circles in Washington is that carbon taxes no longer in vogue, uh, regulate the hell out of them is perhaps more in vogue. Um, do you think there is a coalition that can be compiled that looks like a carbon tax um, and that there's still meaningful tables that will let industry pull seats up and have that conversation? Um, yes, I do, I do think so. So, I mean, if you want to talk Washington inside baseball a little bit, we've seen in, in response to the Biden administration coming in, you know, full blast on climate and energy issues, including some, mm -hmm. you know, what ended up being in, in isolation, not particularly important policy or economic decisions. Uh, Keystone XL, 90 day, uh, mm -hmm. I think it's a 90 day uh, moratorium on new leases, mm -hmm. but end up being big political signals. Mm -hmm. You've seen in response to those things, a, a lot of shifting in the sort of industry voices we have here in Washington, whether that be the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable is another trade association that was probably, they were there supportive of, of carbon pricing six months ago. Um, even the American Petroleum Institute is like sort of flirting with some ideas related to economy-wide measures, market-based mm -hmm. measures. Um, 
I think they rightly sense that in this moment, there is a lot of desire to uh, build climate policy that's going to last, it's going to be durable, that the president and his allies can take to international negotiations and say the U.S. is not abandoning uh, the international community when it comes to climate change, and that um, the time, you know, that, that some of those bargains I was talking about earlier can be struck, right? So you create a friendly environment for business to manage the transition as opposed to an antagonistic one. The question is, and you rightly point out, that um, industry support for pricing and other market mechanisms has sort of been floated before in a way that ended up in policies not being passed. So cap and trade in 2009, 2010 is a prime example, but it happens at state level a lot too. And so my word of, my, my word of caution to my, our friends in industry is, I think you need to be, they need to be moving a little bit faster than, um, you know, this is an idea we can work with, but as you know, these are big diverse organizations and the industry is, is big and diverse. So finding a unified voice is gonna to be tough and we're not ready to endorse anything. I, I actually think we're in an environment where if industry wants to secure those gains, either collectively or individually, they need to be working uh, pretty actively and entrepreneurially to demonstrate how they can help le create better policy outcomes because otherwise Biden and the Democrats are just gonna roll over them. Yeah, I think that's such an important point that there is a window where the industry can still jump in and be a part of a meaningful discussion. And the presumption that you're not welcome at the table. This is an interesting thing I, I hear industry folks saying is, well, no one invited us. We just want a seat at the table. I heard that uh, in response to the leasing. And when, you, when you've rejected a seat at the table for the last 10 years, it is now our responsibility to ask for a seat at the table, to join the table, to participate. So I do make the case that it's the ball is an industry's court to make the first move, I think, on this. And I think you make a compelling case that that's urgent. Let me push, push my perspective one step further, and you are more than welcome to push back. But I do think this political um, momentum around climate and, and similarly an anti-fossil fuel political climate is directional in nature. So I have seen um, companies that Adam and Teen works with say, well, we'll just have to wait them out four more years, you know, uh, you know, wh wh what do we need to do to, to wait this out? But the pressure we've seen from the investor community, the way public opinion is, is moving, my sense is this is directional. And so not only do we have a short window to get on board with whatever comes out of the Biden administration, but the, the investors are also gonna move on. So if we get left behind, we get really left in the dust. Do you think that's a fair characterization or do you think we, we do have, like there will be some back and forth give and take around this and there, there's something to be said for biding our time. So I think in the long-term you're right that ambition around climate change and how much we are sort of willing to act on climate change is, is mostly one directional. You know, it's like, that's the climate, right? Climate is a long-term change. You might have a couple of years where it cools off or global temperatures go down because the ocean is slushing around or it was really, really cloudy in a particular region. And, and similarly, like industry in its current form 
might have good years. Trump years were good, right? Lease sales were were all over the place. The economy was popping. Um, but long term, just look what's happened. Even in the face of this economic of this like economic crisis with COVID, China's going net zero by 2060. The EU is spending a half trillion dollars in green stimulus. GM just announced that they want their whole fleet to be, I think, entirely electric or with some small mm -hmm. exceptions by 2035. All that stuff kind of runs in one direction, right? Waiting out the Biden administration doesn't help anybody with regard to either any of those three. Mm. Excellent. And likewise, I think we'll see continued commitments in, in on the part of the U.S. and other and other countries uh, as as time goes on. So I'm going to argue against myself now and say that this climate and decarbonization has become so partisan. Um, but Joseph, you have made the argument that, that Congress can address climate in a bipartisan fashion. We have some far you know, distant history where, we, where, the, where that once seemed possible. Um, paint an optimistic picture because the oil and gas industry does have a strong conservative po political identity, no matter what arguments I make that we should transcend it. That's a reality. And if climate proceeds in a oh, yeah, one-sided sure. fashion, it won't be durable, right? So, so it, it, and, I've, and I too think it, sh it should be durable and it would be an industry's best interest for it to be durable. So paint an optimistic picture for us of how uh, meaningful climate action happens in a bipartisan way in Congress. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, it may happen, pigs may fly. Uh, it's hard to <laughs> That's make not how I thought you were going to start your uh, optimistic picture. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, hey, it's, it's February 2021. Congress is not looking great at the moment. But let, like, right. I think, again, dig down into what really has happened versus the, a lot of the, the noise that we all see. Last fall, Congress passed a series of measures to support clean energy research, advanced energy development and deployment, energy innovation more broadly, $33 billion, I think, in, in new programs. Uh, bipartisan basis had been worked on for years. Mm -hmm. Senator Mikowski, Senator uh, Manchin uh, were the leads on the Senate side. Subsidies for green energy are perennially supported. You know, is that our is that my favorite model? Probably not, but they 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 win support every year. And then you know, the question of compromise. My favorite, most recent example is uh, many will recall when uh, green subsidies were extended in 2015. That coincidentally happened with the lifting of the crude export oil uh, crude mm. crude export ban. Oof, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's a place where two priorities that were uh, almost universally partisan could be met and coexist. And I think there's a way in which something like a carbon price, particularly a carbon tax, because of the fiscal needs in this country, right? The, the, the need to raise revenue to deal with some of our debt or to accomplish other tax, uh, you, know, preferent, you know, tax changes we'd like to see. Um, the need to do something about climate change, which will be lasting, which will be efficient and will be low cost, all kind of converge on, and will allow industry to do its business uh, where it's still appropriate to do it on, as we make the transition. All that stuff I think accumulates or could attract a, a, a carbon price. You know, We make this case to Republicans and Democrats here in Washington. The Scanlon is constantly working on trying to find new ways to, to poke at that potential compromise through policy change. What, what, you know, what would the statutes do? 
and by keeping up to date with with sort of market conditions. Um, I, I think, you know, even if it doesn't happen this year, you mentioned the windows, you know, there will always be a window for using the right policies. Mm. Um, it would be nice to do them first rather than mess a bunch of stuff up and have to come back later and fix it. We will be back to the Energy Thinks podcast momentarily, but if you work in the oil and gas industry, you understand that we are facing a massive set of disruptions that are unprecedented in our lifetime. This pandemic has upended the world in which we operate in. How can oil and gas leaders face these disruptions in ways that aren't just reactive, but proactive? Tisha Schuler's new book, The Game Changers Playbook, How Oil and Gas Leaders Thrive in an Era of Continuous Disruption, is that guide for oil and gas leaders who want to make sense of this moment and chart a better path forward. Order your copy today at energythinks.com backslash game changer. That's energythinks.com backslash game changer. And now back to the show. So before we, we leave this idea of federal policy, lately, I've heard um, a policy phrase I haven't heard since about 2015, which is cap and trade. Um, does, is, that, is cap and trade in this carbon context getting um, more momentum behind it? Or do you see a, a movement in that direction? Um, you know, I, I, I don't think so. The, um... The, the, the phrase that I see a lot of, and I've written essays responding to these constructions is um, an approach based on what you would, what they would call standards, investments, and justice, mm-hmm. right? That uh, this is sort of the progressive mantra on climate and, and standards refer to uh, mechanisms, which say, you know, emissions have to be this car sales have to be a certain percentage of EVs. Electricity has to be a certain percentage clean. Um, underlying those standards could be sort of sector by sector cap and trade like mechanisms, right? There's still a lot of people on the left who think mark understand that markets are a really good way to keep the cost of policies down. Mm-hmm. And then they want to, then the idea is that those are matched with a set of investments, which are, you know, big public investments in clean technology, green technology, um, so, and green infrastructure, right? So you sort of make the cost of the energy transition less. Uh, or the cost of imposing these standards less by by focusing on the investment side of things. And then there's this third piece, which relates to one of the concerns that come up often from the oil and gas community that when you start asking everyone to change the kind of energy they use or change the uh, everything from their car to their water heater to, uh, to whatever, that you start imposing a lot of costs on people. And so mm-hmm. the, the justice piece is about how do you make sure that the gains from this energy transition are relatively well distributed and that you're not asking too much of low income or particular low income communities or particular regional communities, including I would add um, to the to the credit of our, our friends on the left, uh, fossil fuel generating and fossil fuel producing communities, right? There's at least some attention, mm-hmm. nods, willingness to engage on, on transition where um, industry transition is not possible. Right, well, let's pull on Both one of the- For an example. One of the things you mentioned, um, which we haven't talked a lot about, is environmental justice, um, which which can go in many directions, including, as you're you're implying, a disproportionate um, cost for the energy transition on um, uh, minority communities or impoverished communities. 
there's also the, the counter side of development and where development occurs um, in the trade-offs of energy development in all its forms. Do, has the center taken on a position around uh, environmental justice, equity in that space? Is that something that you guys are wor working on thinking about? Well, it's something that I think everyone in this space has to deal with now, mm -hmm. right? And I, and I don't say that in a pejorative way. Um, I think that there are, I believe that there are communities in this country who suffer adverse health effects because of the concentration of pollution. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes those places are underrepresented for a variety of historical racial reasons, economic reasons, and we should do something about that. I, I, that to me doesn't seem like that hard of a moral or ethical judgment. Um, I think, you know, we have to, at the very top, we were talking about sitting intention. We have to understand and explore better. And we're, we've started a couple of research projects uh, with our team to understand how, how those kind of those goals related to local air quality or, um, or uh, other environmental justice issues sit with our, our historical focus on the efficiency of policy and, and making sure that things are low cost. So as an example, right, like as carbon pricing, carbon tax advocates, one of the things we, we work on or worked on designs for and support is using some of the money that's raised by a carbon tax, like a meaningful carbon tax in the US raises $100 billion a year, right? As because you still have to use fossil fuels, at least for the, for the time being using some of that money uh, either in a rebate scheme or to plus up the uh, you know, low, low income transfers to low income households because we don't want this to you know, adversely affect poor people and, mm -hmm. and energy is a big part of a lot of poor people's budgets. Um, so that, that's a place where we've, we've already worked. That particular mechanism doesn't address the, you know, the concentration of pollution in other communities and so right. what we're looking for is, all right, how do we efficiently do that, right? Mm -hmm. Or efficiently do that? How, and, and how can, uh, you know, mechanisms which, which deal with uh, local pollution issues sit nicely alongside and complement market-based mechanisms so that the pollution for everyone goes down? Hmm. I, I love these two themes that keep coming up in, in, uh, your, in your explanations. And one, of course, is efficiency. Um, but the other, and I might be um, putting words in your mouth or, or thinking about this, is durable. So the, even those solutions, if we're talking about environmental justice, we want it to be meaningful. We want it to be durable. We don't want it to be short term, little short term fixes that that don't uh, um, endure for the time that that we're working on transitioning our economy. Yeah, I mean, I I, I actually, and I actually think there's a big justice component to the efficiency argument, right? That if we can make an energy transition which is affordable and which is relatively fast, then that allows it to benefit everybody evenly faster. Like mm -hmm. I get the, the, um, the sort of aesthetic objection to climate policy, right? It's like, oh, we're gonna build a bunch of windmills and, uh, and solar panels so that people who live in California and New York and Colorado can mm -hmm. uh, can you know buy green energy from their utility and and then we're going to give them big tax credits to drive a hundred thousand dollar Tesla, like I get that that there there's an aesthetic challenge here, and I would say actually there's a there it's an underappreciated aspect of policy efficiency that it actually um, allows us to decarbonize like society or achieve any policy aim. A, 
imposing minimal costs on, on everyone, including lower and middle income people. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to pivot to um, a dream of yours that you tweeted that got a lot of attention um, about a year oh. ago. <laughs> um, if you were... Um, if you were an advisor to an advisor to Jeff Bezos, that you would push um, him to pour all available resources into a willing medium-sized state to prove that decarbonization of a, an economy can occur. So I am interested in how this vision plays out for you and where an oil, an oil and gas company in that economy is going to play a meaningful role. Role. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, so I, I still think it's a good idea. Yeah, uh, I like that, it. That, that thus far is not is not the choice that Mr. Bezos has made with his large <laughs> philanthropic donations. Um, I might I might repeat that he's also welcome to donate to the Scanner Center. Uh, but um, I think that what I was trying to get across, and a lot of interesting stuff has happened in the meantime. Uh, since I, since that, that announcement was made and I sort of popped off in that way. Um, <laughs> what I was trying to get across is one of our chief challenges as a, as a climate advocate is sh- kind of demonstrating that this is possible. And I think for the oil and gas community, this is actually probably an important thing, right? That if, you, if you've, you know, oil demand still doing okay. It's like, it's down right now. Uh, a lot of experts think it's going to trend down for, for the next decade as we switch to EVs and do these other things. But you just, you know, it just feels so necessary. It's everywhere. Like mm-hmm. I, I just think about every gas station in the United States no longer being useful infrastructure. And it's like hard to mm-hmm. imagine that world. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so what I was after was, um, you know, identifying a place that, affords all of the modern, all the benefits of modern life is productive and can be decarbonized. And then using the tools available to Mr. Bezos, which is a big pile of money to help make it happen. And so like a a state, a small state, I think would be a really interesting way to use this because you can kind of, you know, the, the, the range of possibilities is limited. The number of industries is probably uh, less. And you could focus on saying, okay, well, if, you know, um, what's a good example? Colorado's not a bad example, right? Okay, we've got mm-hmm. this big oil and gas production industry. Like, um, you know, we're not talking about wiping it out, but how do we make it as clean as possible? Right. right? What do we do with so, that steel like, plant? I know Colorado has great room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do we do with that steel plant? What do we do with our agricultural ground? And you start, you, you know, my idea was you just start pouring money into the state. You know, it's like, University of Colorado can have a center on carbon management and, um, and an you know, Colorado state, I'm going to run out of Colorado universities very quickly, I'm afraid, but, <laughs> School of uh, you know, Colorado state can have an ag program, right? School. Of, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. School of mines. Well, the, the bankers, you know? Um, and so you would, you could just do a bunch of stuff in, in a fairly consigned um, uh, within a consigned boundary to, to sort of invent the future that you want to create. And I, you know, it's, it's not clear that it is like absolutely possible, but I think along the way you would do a few things which are important to make the energy transition effective. One, you would demonstrate that it's possible and it's not the end of modern civilization, which we're mm-hmm. pretty sure is the case, but we don't mm-hmm. have a lot of living examples of. 
two, right. you would create a ton of engineering, business, and finance expertise in the areas we know we need it that could be diffused throughout the rest of the country. Or if you did this in like a small state, like, um, you know, like a small country, it, you could diffuse it internationally. And, um, and the last thing you would do is, you know, you'd kind of allow there to be um, agglomerations of expertise and new innovations um, in the places where you were doing this funding that I think would, you know, there would be, I suspect there would be significant multipliers on the money you, that Mr. Bezos would be spending because other companies would be making investments in these places to reap the rewards of, of, of all that innovation. Yeah, and there would be failures that then the next state down the line wouldn't have to repeat. They could learn from it and, and move on to the next to the next bright idea. Yeah, yeah, I think I that's right. Right. So it's like you know you you know it's like a bunch of NASA engineers leaving leaving NASA in the '60s and '70s and going out and inventing the the 20th century economy or the late 20th century economy. Like you can kind of think about uh, such a program doing the same thing. I actually suspect that uh, there's going to be a lot of movement in, in the in the federal context mm -hmm. for programs like that. Um, you know, whether or not we have a carbon price, I think there's just sort of a, a a general openness now in federal leadership among many philanthropists, among a lot of policy people, to support these kind of what you would call industrial policy mm -hmm. uh, initiatives. As, as a means of countering China and bringing industry, you know, making sure that we reap the benefits of, of having a fairly flexible and high knowledge workforce here in the US. Um, well, let me ask you a, a little bit about you. Um, one of the things that I, I talk about in my work is the oil and gas industry turning to its values uh, and, and its history in order to deal with so much disruption, so much challenge. So I'm just curious, um, you had a, a 2020 like the rest of us did. Um, did any of your values, um, did, did you have to change uh, any of your values or double down on them? And what, what um, fundamentally got you through that you're bringing forward into 2021? That's a very interesting question. I think, um, well, so my wife and I have young children and like a lot of parents, we've spent an, an immense amount of time with them over the past year, mm -hmm. educating them, uh, caring for them and all that. And, you know, more than when they were going to school during the day, I would say that affected me personally, if I can share. Mm -hmm. um, it made me understand and appreciate the role of professional teachers mm -hmm. uh, much more, and also has has reinvigorated my sense that um, you know education, or I would say even public policy more generally, in young people is very very important because mm -hmm. when we don't do it, uh, I think the, that society loses out on a lot of options uh, for the future. So that would be one. The other one, I think, is maybe more relevant to our, uh, well, if you're talking about the future, I guess climate change is pretty relevant, but uh, that maybe is more relevant to this conversation is I have a sense of immediacy in my work that I didn't a year ago. Mm. And, and that's, and our experience with COVID has actually informed that. Like, I think it's hard to contain a, 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 a virus, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think like prioritizing immediacy when we all kind of, you know, started to read the headlines a year ago, so it's February 2021 right now, um, about the about this new, you know, this new pandemic, and then there was like a cruise ship in California, 
and right. they had some cases on it and but you know it was like kind of this background thing that nobody quite yep. knew a lot about mm-hmm. like if we had had a, a, a a state capacity, a capacity at the state level, meaning the federal government in this case, to respond to that quickly. If we'd acted even imperfectly mm-hmm. to halt the spread of COVID, to get in front of the problem, to, to get PPE to the places where it needed to be, as well as starting up these vaccination um, uh, production uh, uh, programs, I think we would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Yeah. I can't yeah. prove that, right? Right. But I think we would have. And when I when I think about that in the climate context, I think what the last year has really helped me understand. I knew it intellectually, but there's a difference between knowing intellectually and realizing the gravity of the situation that you're dealing mm-hmm. with. Um, acting immediately, maybe even feeling like you're overreacting a little bit in mm-hmm. the face of these big ubiquitous risks really does save lives and help people. And we, and I, it, the thing that I'm carrying forward into 2021 is being much more serious about seeing immediate climate action, even if it means I have to sacrifice like these like cute policy ideas that I like, mm. um, because I think it's that important that, that we make compromises to, to, to make progress on reducing emissions. Um, and, and, and I've kind of like last year has taught me that we, that we should uh, be willing to move a little faster in the face of some of these challenges. Mm, that doesn't that, mean hasty, obviously, but, but, but moving quickly. So that, that's a nice segue into, into what I'd like to, to be uh, the final question I pose to you um, for the podcast, which is in what ways are you challenging yourself to evolve your leadership style? You said what you want to accomplish. So maybe this gets to the how you're going to accomplish it. Um, to be more impactful, to rise to what needs to be done in 2021. In, in what ways um, are you evolving as a as a leader and as a as a public policy figure? So, um, you know, it's tempting to say like, oh man, we just you know, like how do you how do you move more immediately? You just work harder. Well, right. I mean, we can all redline how much we work. It turns out that the boundary of one person you know, for most of us lumping people is like, you know, it's relatively small. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have focused on building new relationships, even if it's awkward and weird at first, mm. because I think in the face of the challenges that we have, we need to be able to, and willing to be a, um, a tough friend, mm. like to our friends in the oil and gas industry. Mm-hmm as well as a willing partner. Like, so, mm. you know, our new embrace of trying to figure out how we, how we address environmental justice in the context mm-hmm. of working on climate change, right? Mm-hmm. It's easy to be like sort of self-satisfied. Ah, we know how to do that. That's their issue. We live in a democratic society. We have to understand and accept everyone's issues because the meat grinder of a democratic society means nobody gets exactly what they want. Um, so I, I would say that that kind of focusing on expanding uh, my um, my boundaries, uh, trying to speak to new audiences. Um, thank you for having me on the podcast, by the way. Uh, and um, and and being less reserved about uh, the means by which we pursue climate action. I think there's a really strong case for a carbon price. I I on and I can I'll talk about it till I'm blue in the face. Uh, but that doesn't mean that. You know, if uh, 
if different designs end up being politically saleable or can achieve uh, policy ends that end up being important, that, that we should not do them because it's not exactly the thing that is in my white paper. I, oh, I, that's so just not the model that I'm looking to embrace in 2021. I love that. So Joseph, you unwittingly invoked the third game changer, the third of three game changers um, that I prescribed to the oil and gas industry, which is to expand our sphere of civic leadership and influence. And you spoke to that. Um, oh, uh, so, so that's um, just remarkable and lovely because that's the hardest one to do because we want to stay in our little comfortable shell, but we have to, we have to get out there and be leading with urgency into the future that we're going to co-create. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for expanding your audience with us. And I hope that um, oil and gas leaders across North America will be reaching out to uh, figure out how they can support a, car a carbon tax with you. Yeah, I do too. I'm happy to talk about it. I'm happy to talk to uh, our friends who are more skeptical. Uh, you can find me arguing on Twitter as well as at the website of the Niskanen Center. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to come chat. Happy to do it again anytime. Awesome. Thanks, Joseph. That's our episode for today. Thanks to Joseph Mycutt for taking time to share his insights and some pretty interesting pers perspectives from the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., and you know what was really um, game-changing insight for me was this idea of efficiency and its importance in justice. I also really like this idea as a, as a liberal uh, libertarian myself, I like the tensions around political labels and libertarian, conservative, moderate, which we talked about at the beginning. I think we're all getting pulled by these tensions right now and have the opportunity to uh, transcend them in our leadership. I'd like to know what you think and what you found game-changing about uh, Joseph's work. So visit our podcast website at energythinks.podcast and let me know. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please rate us. Um, and I wanna take a moment to thank the team that makes these podcasts possible every week, Lindsay, Scott, and Michael. I couldn't do it without you. Thanks for listening to the Energy Thinks podcast. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health. <laughs>